And how can you be an optimist in a day such as we live in? How, how can you look at things with a positive bent, knowing all of the troubles that are going on around the world? You, you look within our own society and you see the, the problem between the races that continues to foment. You see across the seas the, the, terror that is going on even as we're speaking today, the, the martyrdom, the suffering, the pain of those who call themselves Christian. We look at the events that are taking place with unfolding of what's happening with Iran, and some people believe that we're taking a good course to maintain peace. Others believe we're taking a bad course that will ultimately lead in a conflagration of terrible proportions. And you look within perhaps your own family and you see difficulties and you see problems. And, and, and you know, you, you could go on and on and on with all of these things. And yet the Lord says, wait a minute, don't let that get you down. Instead, let me tell you why you can be optimistic. And he tells us about the position that we have in Christ in the first two verses. Then he goes on in verses 3 through 5 to tell us that even in the midst of our suffering, God has a purpose for allowing those things into our lives. And because of that purpose, we can go through the most difficult times, the most tragic times, with absolute confidence that in the end, for those who know Christ as their Savior, all will be well. He's going to take us one more step. If you have not been convinced at this point... Then he wraps this up in verses 6 through 11 and says, Now listen, how can you be down when I tell you all of these realities? Go back with me again and look at these verses with me. There in in verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he takes us into a realm of understanding that perhaps apart from this, we, we would never lay hold of. Why is it that we as followers of Christ can be optimistic, we can look at the events that are taking place around us, realize those are not the final answer to anything, that all of this is temporary and our eyes are to be focused on the eternal. So now he tells us, do you know why you can be optimistic? Because of the plan that God has established. Notice, go back again. Look at this verse. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at the timing of what God tells us. He tells us this. The arrival of Christ to come to become the Redeemer, the sacrifice for our sins, was perfectly timed. He is going to write to the Galatians and he's going to tell them this. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Why did Christ come 2,000 years ago? The reason is it was absolutely the perfect time. From the human point of view, we would say something like this. The circumstances that were in the known world at that period of time were absolutely aligned the right way for Christ's coming. There was a universal language. 
that was spoken virtually anywhere you would go. It was the Greek language. And it's the language in which most of the New Testament was written. It was the language that was designed for the common person to speak. And even in foreign lands, people would speak the Greek language by virtue of what Alexander the Great had done in carrying his Greek culture into the known world. Then the Romans, who essentially defeated the the Grecian Empire, they began to introduce other things that became important. The, The roads that they built, they provided for transportation to get to places of the world that prior to their building those roads, and they built them so that they could supply their legions, they could bring them food, they could bring them more of the things that they needed for their conquest of the world. Well, these roads now made it possible for people to move throughout the the, the empire. In addition, the Romans, in spite of the fact that they were an occupying force in a number of different countries, were also individuals who brought peace in the sense that there was law and order, and if you broke the law, you would have to answer to the Romans, but they did keep a degree of peace within the empire so that now, from the human point of view, we would look at this and say, the perfect time had come. The most important fulfillment came through the prophecies that had been given by Daniel and by Isaiah and by others of the prophets. Everything was now aligning within the time frame of what God had established going all the way back to the time of Israel's um, captivity with the, the Egyptians and the history that followed and then their rejection of God's truth, their being taken over by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and all of those events, ultimately leading to the fulfillment of the coming of Christ. It was just the perfect time. It was just right. Now, the Lord has told us that he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's not just a spiritual kingdom which rules within our hearts, though we would say that the kingdom of God does rule within the hearts of those who are followers of Christ. But there is going to be the establishment of a literal, physical kingdom that will last for a thousand-year period of time. And we would look at that and we'd say, Lord, why don't you come and do that now? Do you ever feel that way? I, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if the, the rapture would occur, we go to be with the Lord, and then seven years later we come back with the Lord to establish this kingdom on earth, to rule and to reign with him, a time of peace, a time of safety, a time of harmony. It won't end well, but for a thousand years it's going to go along very, very well. And we look at that and we say, Lord, we know that until the Prince of Peace comes, there's never going to be peace in the Middle East. There's never going to be peace within our country. We are going to work for those things, but they're never going to be ultimately fulfilled because that will not happen until the Prince of Peace comes. When's he going to come? I don't know, but here's what I can promise you. It'll be at just the right time. It'll be absolutely perfect. It won't be on an American time schedule. It won't be on an Israeli time schedule. It certainly is not going to be on a Russian time schedule. It is going to be on God's plan, in his plan, and it will come at precisely the right time.
Now, understanding those things helps us bring them down, funnel them down to the place where we look and we say, well, you know, if God's timing is perfect in such a macro sense, what about in the micro sense? What about where he comes and works within us? And here's what I can tell you. His timing in your life is absolutely perfect. He knows exactly when to bring difficulties and trials and hardship into your life, and he knows when to deliver you from those hardships and those difficulties and those trials. We go back to a man by the name of Abraham. And, and I, these, these uh, events that the Lord records for us in his word, they're all designed for our good. They are designed to teach us things. And if you looked at what happened with Abraham and the promises that God had given to him concerning a son, and you remember how the the son's birth was delayed. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. His wife was 90. Both of them passed the childbearing years. So it's a miraculous conception that takes place, not not the same as the Lord's. Let's be careful about that. But there was a miracle that took place in the the normal reproduction. And here comes this son, Isaac. Now, the promises that God had made to Abraham many years before are now in in play. And and they're, they're going to be fulfilled because God had promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. There would be a progeny that would be his that would be not only physical, but there would be a spiritual progeny as well. And so... Abraham looks at his son Isaac, and can you imagine how much pride there must have been in Abraham's life? Every time he looks at his son, he'd say, you're, you're the one God promised me. You're the one that, that came because God has a plan, and through you, there are going to be descendants that are going to be innumerable, and you're the apple of my eye. And then the Lord says, Abraham, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him. By this time, Isaac is probably a teenager. Some would say maybe even a little bit older. So he he is, you know, you look at someone that you, you don't have to change their diapers anymore. You don't have to feed them. They're, they're independent. You're watching them grow. You see them making decisions. And though they may make some wrong decisions along the way, there's still a thrill to have, uh, un, unless they're a teenager. <laughs> and then Abraham responds. And Abraham says, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do. He doesn't stop to confer with uh, Sarah. He takes Isaac and he takes his servants and he takes a donkey and he takes firewood and he says, come with me. And as they go, they arrive at a place that today is at the location of the city of Jerusalem. And they have now found the place where God says, sacrifice Isaac. 
Abraham doesn't hesitate. He takes Isaac and he tells the servants to wait. And uh, he takes Isaac to the place of sacrifice to this rock that many believe is where the, the dome of the rock, you've heard of the mosque of Omar, the golden domed uh, Muslim, that is supposed to be built over the place where this sacrifice was to take place. So it gives you a geographic picture of where this is occurring. And Isaac raises the question, and he says, uh, Dad, he says, here's the fire and here's the wood, but, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, don't worry, son, God's going to provide the lamb. Whatever was going through Abraham's mind has got to be somewhat indiscernible on our part because I don't know anybody who has been responsible for the taking of the life of their own son. But here's what I do know. Abraham, in his thinking, believed that once his son had been put to death, God would raise him from the dead. The scriptures tell us that. And so he places his son who willingly goes on to the altar with the wood and he brings up the knife, probably not to stab him, but probably to cut his throat so that he would bleed out the way the sacrifices would be offered. And just before he brings the slice, God says, stop. Now you look at that and you'd say, why did God allow that trial to go so far? And I would just make this suggestion to you that had God stopped that any sooner, Abraham would have never known for sure that he would have been willing to go through with the sacrifice of his son. And if he had waited any longer, he would have killed his son. What was the end result? The timing was absolutely perfect. Do you understand the implications of that for our lives as well? That when God allows us to go through times of difficulty, and and he does, and he has told us in the preceding verses that those are for a purpose, those times of difficulty, and we say, well, Lord, when's this going to come to an end? Here's what you can hear in return. It'll come to an end at just the right time. That's what we can count on. Because God's purposes transcend our understanding. And what he does is always in the right time. He even takes people home to glory at the right time. Now, we don't always agree with that. Because sometimes we look at the death of a loved one and they say, they, they were so young. Why were they taken at, at that time? Or perhaps someone is, is in the midst of a... A, a spiritual victory that's going on. Um, some of you might remember the name, and and I was, you know what? I'm going to read this to you because th- this is this is good. This is good stuff. Did you ever hear of the Welch revival? Any of you? There was a great revival that took place in the United Kingdom, the Welch revival, and a fellow by the name of Evan Roberts was the man that God used in that revival. Now now listen to how this unfolds. Evan Roberts was a coal miner, tall, blue-eyed, young, and thin. His dark hair curled over his forehead and ears. 
He harbored a deep burden for souls, and he prayed earnestly for revival. At age 25, having just begun studying for the ministry, he asked his pastor for permission to hold some evening meetings. Only a few people came at first, but within days, village shops were closing early for the services. People left work to secure seats at church. (laughs) The building was packed and roadways clogged with the would-be attenders. Services often lasted until 4.30 a.m. Sins were confessed, sinners converted, homes restored. In neighboring towns, Robert saw similar results. All across Wales, theaters closed, jails emptied, churches filled, and soccer matches were canceled to avoid conflicting with the revival. Welch miners were so converted... This is great. Welsh where, where was I here? Oh, Welsh miners were so converted that their pit ponies had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. <laughs> Maybe I get too far into these things, but I just like oh, can you <laughs> On March 29, 1905, Evan Roberts opened a series of meetings at Shaw Street Chapel in Liverpool, out of Wales into England, out of the country into the city. Thousands thronged around the church, and people poured in from all parts of England, Scotland, Ireland, and the continent, and America. Multitudes were converted or found new joy in Christ. Often, Roberts didn't even preach. The very sight of him sent rivers of emotion flowing through the crowds. By the way, Does that not tell you that the work of salvation is a sovereign work of God? He didn't even preach. He just showed up. Anyway, okay. When he did speak, his message was quiet and simple. Obedience to Jesus, complete consecration to his service, receiving the Holy Spirit and allowing ourselves to be ruled by him. The Liverpool meetings left Roberts exhausted, needing weeks to recover. On his next preaching tour, a whirlwind of revival again swirled around him, but yet again the young man returned home, drained and exhausted. Robert spoke four times more. Then he retired to a friend's home for a week's recovery. He stayed 17 years, and he never preached again. He spent his remaining 45 years in secluded ministry and prayer, here and there with friends. He died in 1951. His public ministry had lasted only four months, but it had shaken Wales and England to the foundations. I listen to that and I, I say, Lord, why? here's this man that is being so mightily used by you and his ministry lasts four months Virtually nothing else of consequence happens, and he dies. You know, his death was absolutely at the perfect time. We sometimes get the opinion that people live, some people live too long. People who are going through suffering, we look at them, and I've often heard people say this, I don't know why the Lord doesn't take them home. Or I've heard people themselves say, Lord, 
why don't you take me home? And we look at that and we think, well, they're living too long. Sometimes we think people live too long because they're jerks. Do you know what the Lord says? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Unless you understand what the word precious means, you'll never catch the understanding of that. It means something to be watched over very carefully. People die at just the right time. Why can we be optimistic? Because as we walk with the Lord, we're not going to die prematurely. We're not going to hang around too long. It'll be just the right time because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So we can be optimistic because of God's timing. But there's more that Paul addresses in this. He goes on to tell us in verse 8. Well, I'm, I'm going to begin in verse 7 because it really lays the background for it. It says this, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet per, uh, perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We can be optimistic because of the great love that God has for us. Now that seems to go without saying because we often speak of his love. We sing of his love. We, we revel in his love. But here is what Paul is saying. He's saying this. You know, if someone was called to die for somebody else, you wouldn't die for somebody that's a rascal. And maybe somebody would be willing to give up their life for a really good person. But God sent his son because of the greatness of his love for us to die when we were at our worst. And the love of God is so great and so mighty that he looks at us through the eyes of who he is and he sends his son to die on our behalf to take the punishment we deserve and to die in our place. You know, when when people, when we look at the human side of love, how, how, do, we, how do we arrive at a place where we love someone? I would dare say that usually it's because there is some sort of an attraction of some kind. For example, young people, probably some of you, and, and listen, this, is, this isn't excluding the rest of us. Many of you are on the other side of what I'm going to say. But for you guys, when, when you want to fall in love with someone, isn't it because you're initially attracted by something? Okay, I got one thumbs up. They're all, are you guys afraid? Are you afraid to answer anything that I say? Uh, Oh, some of you are turning red. (laughs) This is great. Oh, I should have gotten to this sooner. Um, You will, you will look at someone and you'll say, okay, that person is really, whoa. I know I just got paid back, didn't I? That person is really attractive. Physically, usually guys look for an attractive girl and girls, I don't know exactly what you look for. (laughs) I've seen some girls date some real losers. But anyway, 
<laughs> guys have too. But usually there's something that attracts you. It might be their athletic capabilities. It, it might be if you're kind of nerdy. It could be their intellectual abilities, uh, whatever. There is something that attracts you. For a husband and wife, you may have been initially attracted by some external element, but usually what happens is that once the marriage takes place and you begin to live together, hopefully you will begin to recognize the qualities of each other's lives that really become a blessing to you. So, so it's really now the, the quality of your character and the quality of, of who that person is that really draws my heart to them. And, and our love is no longer based upon the attraction of appearance, because as time goes by, the appearance changes. But the love can deepen because of the, the greatness of your appreciation of the other person. Um, love that, that is found in other areas, a child, uh, when, when a parent loves a child, you generally love the child because of their dissent, their relationship to you. And the reason you know this is, if you ever do anything on, on Facebook... And, and I've told you before, I, I go onto Facebook because it just keeps me informed about a whole lot of stuff. And uh, you'll see parents, and they'll put down how cute their kids are and how special. They're all the smartest kid that's ever been born. And they're all the most beautiful child that you've ever seen. And it goes on and on. But, you know, you don't feel that way about someone else's child, though you could appreciate that child. You, you might genuinely care for it, but it's not the same because there is something that attracts you because this is my offspring. This is my child. And they're really special. And so there, there are these externals. In, in a friendship, do you remember what happened with David and Jonathan? After David went to fight with Goliath, and David came back and was speaking with King Saul. Jonathan was there, and he's listening as David talks about the events that have just unfolded with his willingness to go out to fight this, this giant with a stone and a sling. And the Bible tells us that when uh, David was finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan's heart was so drawn to him because of his courage, because, because of the, the intellect, the, whatever was involved, he is drawn to him. And the way the Bible put it, that their hearts were knit together stronger than the, the knitting together of the love of a husband and wife. They were really good friends. That's not how God's love works. Paul tells us that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. God's love is not based upon our loveliness. It is not based upon anything within us that would draw him to us. His love is always based upon the very nature of who he is. God is love. Be careful. You cannot reverse that and say love is God as some try to do today. 
No, the characteristic of God's nature is love. And he loves because of who he is, not because of who we are. How do we know that? Go back to this passage again. Look at the way we are described in this passage. First of all, there in verse 6, for when we were still without strength, we were helpless, we were powerless. What does mean? It means that there is nothing that we could possibly do to rescue ourselves from the dominion of sin and ultimately from its condemnation. We were helpless. There would be nothing that we could embrace that or anything that we could do that would cause us to become children of God. And so he sent his son to die in our place. We were helpless. He goes on to say in that same verse, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't reverence God. We we didn't pursue righteousness. We didn't desire any of those things that we would look at and say, this is really appealing to our God. Instead, we were ungodly. Drop down to verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We all missed the mark. We were all lawless. We we were doing exactly the opposite of what a righteous person would do. We had fallen short of God's glory. And then you drop down to verse 10. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were his enemies. We we were at odds with our creator. And yet the Lord says, I love you enough that I'm going to send my son to die for you. Why do we revel in the love that God has for us, it's because of who he is that will never, ever change. Sometimes people stop loving one another. God will never stop because it's his nature. There is another thing that causes us to doubt God's love. It's our self-evaluation. We look at ourselves And here's what we see. If we have any kind of spiritual sensitivity, we become disappointed in ourselves. There are times when I sin and all I can do is beat myself up internally. And then, to be honest with you, it's really hard to come before God and to say, Lord, I have sinned. And what I did was wrong. And and sadly, okay, now listen, I'm not telling you this is the way it should be. I'm telling you the way it is for me. It may be totally different for you. But there can be hours and sometimes days where after I've done something that I know was a sin, I just inside, I'm just being eaten up. And, and I'm saying, how could you do that? How could you be so stupid? How could you allow yourself to get sucked into that? How And and. The, the, the 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 whole evaluation of myself continues on and it's really lousy. And then there are times 
when I just flat out fail. It may not be a sin, but it may be something that maybe I should have done and I didn't get done. And and it it's just a failure. And I look at that and I say, Lord, you know, I I am so weak. How in the world can can you love me being this kind of a person? Sometimes it's because of our failure in our own spiritual disciplines. We realize after about three or four days, I haven't spent any time with the Lord. I've just been so busy with things, with other stuff that's going on, that I've not really been in any fellowship with him. I've not enjoyed his presence. And he says... I love you still the same. Folks, you're not reacting at all, but that should get a reaction. (laughs) Honestly, come on. Do you understand that God does not want us to live in the shadow of our failures and our weaknesses? I'm not saying that we excuse sin or we excuse failure or we excuse weakness. There are things that have to be addressed when those things take place. But here's the truth. God's love for me has not diminished one bit. No matter how many times I've failed him, no matter how much wrong I've done, he still loves me just the same. And you know what we need to do? We need to stop living under the shadow of our own self-evaluation and live in the light of what God says about you. I loved you when you were, when you were a sinner, when you were helpless, when, when you had no hope. I loved you when you were my enemy. Do you think now, as being my son, I'm ever going to love you less? Do you get the power of what Paul is saying here? My love for you gives me the gives you the reason why you can live every day optimistically in spite of the troubles that come, in spite of what's going on in the world around you. I love you and I'll never stop. Amen. But there's one more. There's one more. I want you to look even down further where God's power now becomes the reason why we can live with such confidence and with such optimism. Notice what it says there in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified. If you ever wonder if God is going to stop loving you or if God is going to turn you back over to the realm of sin or if he is going to kick you out of his family, you have to read the rest of these verses. Because what he says is there in verse 9, you have been justified. That is a finished transaction. I have declared you righteous based upon the sacrifice of my son. He carried your sin past, present, and future. So there's no longer any condemnation that will come your way by virtue of your own sins because Christ took it, and you have been given his righteousness. And by the way, just so you know this, I'm never going to take that away from you. You've been, you've been drawn into my family now. You're mine. He goes on in that same verse to say, we have been justified by his blood. It is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that is the guarantee of the forgiveness that God has extended to us. What can wash away my sins? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Some of you heard of a guy by the name of Constantine. He was one of the emperors. And and, uh, make a long story short, through a victory that he had, which he thought came as a result of his vision of the sign of the cross, he declared Christianity to be the state religion in Rome. But there's something interesting. If I remember my history correctly, he did not get baptized until shortly before he died because his theology taught him that the washing away of his sins would be through the waters of baptism. What deception. What failure. Baptism doesn't wash away any sin. The blood of Christ washes away our sins and cleanses us completely so that in the very presence of God, there is no more condemnation. I am his, and he is mine. There's a third. If you drop down to verse 10, where he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, I have been drawn into a friend relationship with one to whom I had been antagonistic all my life until I came to trust in Christ as my Savior. And now we have become friends. I am a friend of God's. And then he finishes with this. Much more having been reconciled Will we shall be saved by his life. Now listen, this is not telling us for one moment that it was the life of Christ that we would emulate, that we would duplicate, that would bring us forgiveness and eternal life. It isn't even speaking about his earthly life. It is speaking about his life right now. We know from the scriptures that the Bible describes Christ as being seated at the right hand of the Father. That is an anthropomorphism that's designed to help us picture the way things are working in heaven. But here's what the the real outworking is. The Bible tells us that we have an advocate with the Father so that if any one of us sins, we have someone who stands as our advocate, as our attorney, and says, Father, those sins have all been forgiven. He cannot be condemned anymore. She cannot be condemned anymore. The life of Christ that is now being lived is a life of advocacy that guarantees our acceptance by the Father because the only way you and I can ever lose our salvation is if Christ fails. When is he going to fail? Never. Never. He lives to keep us, to hold us, to guarantee that we're coming home one day. He died that we might live. He suffered so that we would escape the wrath of God. He has become the reason for which we can live with absolute optimism. If you know Christ, everything I've said this morning is yours. If you don't know Christ, you can trust him today. Believe that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, he rose again from the dead. 
And when you trust him as your savior, you pass from death into life 